Hello and welcome to this week's episode of About Abortion. Uh, today I'm joined by my friend Tim Lewis. Tim, welcome. Hi Dave, good to be here with you. Thanks so much for making time uh, for us. So uh, Tim, tell us a bit about yourself. You're, you're, you've been um, in pastoral work for, for a number of years now. Yes, that's right. So over 10 years really in, in different churches and uh, I'm currently working uh, part-time for a church at the moment in, in North Yorkshire. But I also, a couple of years ago, started um, started part-time a PhD in, in biblical studies. And, and really the focus of that is looking at what the Bible has to say about uh, the, the unborn child. So the kind of cumulative picture really from Genesis through to, to Revelation. And my thesis really is that taken as a whole, the, the Bible actually has quite a lot to say uh, and does paint quite a coherent and robust uh, picture of the unborn child. Brilliant. Yeah, and that's that's what we're, we're going to be hearing more um, about from you today. So yeah, thanks for, for coming to share that um, with us. We first met, I think, uh, two, two, three, four years ago, I came to speak at your church and you're already just kind of getting into that study. So we, we've been uh, having some good chats about that since. That's right. Yeah. So it's been, a, it's been, it's kind of, the, the research has roughly <laughs> segued with my kind of uh, knowledge and interaction with, with Breathos and CBR UK. So it's been a yeah. fruitful relationship in that sense. Yeah. yeah brilliant. And you're, uh, you're a family man, three, three, Three boys? Yes, we have three yeah. boys. Uh, we have right. twins that are five and a little baby about seven months. So if I look slightly tired, that's that's the reason why. <laughs> and, and and also a dog that, that looks somewhat more like a wolf. Uh, I don't know the breed, but... Yeah, we have an Akita, yeah. So I was saying today before we started recording, if, if you hear like a, a random dog barking, that will be it. Don't, don't be alarmed, viewer. But um, yes, if anybody would like to adopt a, a Japanese Akita, then, <laughs> then, then do message Dave afterwards. <laughs> it's quite it's quite overwhelming. It's a lovely dog, but it's, yeah, it's a large white wolf-like. Yes, just malts all the time, so that's <laughs> the main problem. Brilliant. Well, Tim, let's let's get cracking. You, um, you, you, you mentioned as if, uh, as if, a rebuttal to what's often said, the Bible actually has quite a lot to say on abortion. Because, of course, um, one could um, reasonably conclude looking in from the outside or indeed from within the church, especially looking back at the history of the church's engagement on this issue, especially in the 60s and 70s. I mean, one could be forgiven for thinking, well, it's up to everyone just to make up their own mind about this issue because the Bible doesn't really talk about abortion. Does it? So, so, so tell us, does the Bible talk about abortion? What's, what's the deal? Well, it's a great question. I mean, well, so the word abortion is not in the, in the Bible, just as the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Does that mean uh, it's not there? Well, I would suggest no. And I mean, my, I suppose my approach in, in this research is looking at the, the materials are there to build a very clear picture of, of the, the value, the humanity, the, the, the worth of, of life uh, in the womb, indeed from conception. So I think when you have that, then, then clearly um, an act that takes that life, uh, which to all intents and purposes is innocent, uh, obviously as a Christian, I believe in original sin, but to all intents and purposes innocent, then, then that's a, that's a problem. That's a transgression I would suggest of God's, of God's law. Um, yeah, so that in a nutshell right. is where I would come down on that particular issue. Yeah, and that's that's really helpful because I think, you know, there's data coming out showing that um, only about one in 20 evangelicals have ever heard thorough teaching about abortion in church. So uh, there are plenty of us, you know, who've grown up in the church and yet we've, we've not really um, been walked through what the scriptures have to say about this. So... So let, we're going to do that now. We're going to do that together uh, for those listening in. Uh, we don't want to assume people have heard this before. So, so let's let's look at those those things you you, you mentioned. So uh, the way I see it is, you know, yes, the Bible doesn't mention the word abortion, but it's as simple as two plus two equals four. In that, we've got a very clear picture of life from conception, and we've also got a very clear prohibition when it comes to the taking of innocent life. So. Can you just yeah help us to kind of understand where, where do we get these things biblically? So specifically, you mentioned life from conception, didn't you? Not not just life. Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. I mean, let's let's start at the very beginning. Uh, yeah. And and you know, an interesting thing just in the Old Testament is that is that the verb for to conceive is used you know well over thirty times, which is which is interesting. And when that is the case, the text always goes on to describe the child who is born, and the first 
occurrence of the noun conception is actually in Genesis chapter three, uh, which is talking about um, Eve's fate post fall. And it's often disguised in a number of translations, but where uh, God says that I will increase your pain in childbearing, childbearing is actually the word conception. So we have conception to childbirth in, in view here. Um, so there's a, there's a focus, there's an interest in conception, in pregnancy, in offspring, right at the start of the Genesis narratives. And of course, if you look at the verse immediately preceding uh, where conception is mentioned, Genesis 3.15, it's, it's through one such pregnancy, of course, that the Messiah will be born, who will crush um, the serpent's head. So there's a kind of messianic interest in these things, a, a, a salvation historical, a kind of big picture, biblical theological interest. But more, more generally, you know, uh, human existence in the Bible consistently, I would suggest, looks back to conception mm-hmm. rather than birth. So Job famously in uh, chapter three, verse three, when he's in a pretty gloomy mood, I think it's fair to say, he says, you know, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said, a boy or a male child is conceived. So he sees the problem there beginning not so much on the day of his birth, but on the day he came into existence, or the night rather, he came into existence nine months previously. And of course, Psalm uh, 51.5 has something similar in terms of, you know, being brought forth in iniquity and in sin, did my mother conceive me? Even, even just one last, even in the love poetry of uh, Song of Songs, uh, if you look at Song of Songs uh, 3 verse 4, um, the woman talks about bringing her beloved into the chamber of her mother who conceived her. It's a strange expression, really, but I think it just shows that that consistent kind of mindset is that um, life begins at conception. This is when a new life comes to uh, exist. Um, and I think the other thing to say with that is a very strong uh, particularly in you know, those Genesis narratives, the, the you know the stories of the matriarchs and the patriarchs, there's a very strong sense in Scripture that without God's involvement, there, yeah. there is no conception, there is no pregnancy. God is the one who opens the womb. Mm. God is the one who superintends that the formation, the development of a child, um, which is of course seen as a as a great blessing, something to be mm. celebrating. You know, Psalm 127: Children are a heritage from the Lord; the fruits uh, of the womb are rewards and if you go really back to the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis uh, 20, Genesis 1, sorry, um, humanity is made in the image and likeness of God, and, and part of uh, humankind's commission is to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth. So procreation is part of God's original blessing, I would suggest. You know, mm. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So, and of course, that is reiterated um after the after the flood so even after kind of god begins again genesis 9 1 genesis 9 7 humankind through Noah and his sons are called um to be to be fruitful to to, to multiply mm-hmm. and some people might say well well okay that's all very well and good but this is a complete this is an ancient near eastern culture this is you know social and cultural expectations a world away from 21st century uh post-modern britain and to an extent, that's true. And, and of course, you know, tragically, in the biblical world, there was huge levels, high levels of infant mortality, uh, as well as maternal mortality. Pregnancy was and childbirth particularly were very dangerous for uh, women and girls. Um, there's also, of course, a suggestion that, you know, you needed large families. You needed large families, A, because a lot of children might die very young, but also you needed those families to help support farm the land, care for parents in in old age. There was, in other words, social and cultural factors around having big families, the desire for many children, uh, and probably starting uh, families much earlier than we would typically now in the West. And and one can admit that to an extent, one can see that cultural uh, sort of context, but I think other things can't be explained away as as easily as that you know i I think the idea that god is the one in charge uh, god is the one who opens the womb god is sovereign in every pregnancy uh in every um in every child that comes to be i don't think you can simply uh, airbrush that out as Mm -hmm. as easily so i would suggest that is that is part of the biblical worldview from the very first pages of genesis which which inform um, not just Old Testament thinking, but I think they inform Jesus's view of children as a gift from mm. God and, and pregnancy mm. as something to be to be celebrated. Mm. And it's worth mentioning there, isn't it, that actually uh, we can take for granted um, this idea 
that human beings are at least meant to be intrinsically valuable, that we, you know, we care about people not because of what they can do for us, but just because they're people. But actually, that's not a universal, um, it's not a universally accepted uh, doctrine. But in the ancient Near East, actually, um, and, and, and in, in Greco-Roman cultures, um, you know, infanticide was rife, abortion also very common. And actually, children were not valued. Uh, automatically. Um, they were not considered valuable in a lot of cultures until they've already, you know, reached, if they if they got at least the potential to become a great warrior or whatever it is. Um, and so, you know, child sacrifice is very common in the in the culture surrounding um, the, the biblical, the, the Old Testament writers. And indeed, of course, it, it invaded uh, Israelite culture as well. So it's it's very easy to, to think, well, it's obvious, we, you know, we care about life. Well, actually, that's not always uh, and everywhere been the case um, from conception or otherwise. So it is, it is distinctive, isn't it? Yeah, no, I, I think so. That's exactly right, Dave. And I think every culture generally has, has struggled with um, that temptation to, to end life prematurely, or, or as you say, even once a child is born. And uh, I think Greco-Roman culture, particularly abhorrent in that regard and particularly for young girls you know uh, female babies would often just be um, gotten rid of or, or it would have been a future of, of of eventual prostitution or slavery really so so absolutely and, and one of the ironies I think is that um, often uh, Christians perhaps or, or a biblical worldview or the bible itself is seen as quite you know um, patriarchal seen as quite you know this is a well this is a male text with with male interests and you know, I think it's fascinating the amount of, of, of airtime, if you like, the Bible gives to, to women and their stories. Um, you think of Luke's gospel, it begins really with a conversation between two women. But m m more generally, I think in the Old Testament, there's a huge number of pregnancies that are narrated in some detail. And it's often from the perspective of, of a woman. I mean, and, and, and many times it's about, well, how that sort of seed line of promise continues through the matriarchs. But sometimes it's it's not even that. So, for example, Hagar, who becomes the mother of Ishmael, um, so, so, so kind of not part of that promised line of seed, you know, lovely depiction, Genesis 16, of her story of pregnancy. And it's a pretty difficult beginning to, to motherhood, really. And But the text makes it very clear how God sort of safeguards Hagar uh, safeguards her unborn child, even when she's been effectively abandoned by Abraham, stroke Abraham, her husband at that point. And, you know, in the context of her pregnancy, she she has this revelation, this theophany, um, God appears to her and she kind of, she names God in scripture that you are the God who sees me, uh, you know, Roy, you know, it's quite an incredible sort of text. So, and there'd be many other stories like that. You could look a little bit further in Genesis, the story of Tamar, who goes to, in Genesis 38, who goes to great lengths to be uh, pregnant and then to watch over her child when, it, when a, um, the father at one point wants to kill her. And Tamar, of course, becomes part of uh, one of King David's and eventually Jesus's uh, forebears. Or, or I suppose if you wanted to pick one story in scripture that, that summed up a kind of problem pregnancy if you like an inconvenient pregnancy that would be the story of Bathsheba and David of course um, and I guess most folks know David essentially takes this woman uh, sleeps with her Bathsheba becomes pregnant um, it's intensely inconvenient for David yet he never contemplates the text never gives us any hint that he thinks okay well if I just get rid of this pregnancy if I just get rid of this child all my problems will go away no, I mean, he goes to great lengths to get rid of Uriah, which which is awful, but that for him is never an option really on the table. And, you know, Nathan even talks about this child dying for the sin of others when when uh, Bathsheba and David's child is still in the womb. And I, and I think that can even be seen as prefiguring Christ. So there's some wonderful stories. I think most the most detailed descriptions from those pregnancy stories, I would say, come in uh, the story of Rebecca and her twins. Uh, Jacob and Esau, which is Genesis 25. And again, it's an amazing account. So uh, Rebecca has been um, unable to conceive for a long time, as many of the matriarchs are. Eventually, after sort of 20 years, um, uh, Isaac prays and, and uh, Rebecca conceives. But um, the problem with her pregnancy is there's these very violent sort of uterine movements. And of course, a lot of women would, would be reassured by movements in the womb. But for Rebecca, these are a little bit uh, foreboding. And she actually goes to seek 
the Lord to make sense of what on earth is happening. And of course, she's told that she's actually carrying two peoples or nations, even at that time within her womb, and the older will serve the younger. And they're kind of fighting within the womb, Jacob and Esau's fighting in the womb. It's seen very much as a precursor to their tempestuous relationship as adults and the people peoples they then come to represent. So Israel, Jacob, Israel, and, and Esau as, as, as Edom. And of course, Jacob comes out grasping Esau's heel. So their independence, their character, their personality is communicated while they're still in the womb. That informs very much the biblical portrait of them, you know, later in Hosea, for example, talking about Jacob and, and Esau. So they're absolutely not simply a part of their mother's body. They are individual, separate uh, people who make their presence felt. And when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, it's interesting that the words uh, used for their movements, these kind of fairly violent movements, is the same word actually that Luke uses for John the Baptist leaping in the womb when he hears uh, um, Mary's greeting, although there it's a kind of, it's a joyous moment. So, so that's interesting. And then just very finally, one final uh, scripture would be Judges 13, which is the story of, it's the kind of birth narrative to do with Samson. And uh, Samson's mother or Manoah's wife were never actually told her name, which is interesting. And you might think again, well, that sort of uh, denigrates her as a character. But the other person we're never told the name of in that story is the angel, who is a fairly glorious and awesome presence. So I think we're meant to make a link there between the angel and Manoah's wife. And Samson is described very clearly as a Nazarite from the womb, meaning within the womb. And because of that, his mother is given certain Nazarite stipulations to observe during her pregnancy. So, you know, obviously today we have all sorts of pregnancy vitamins and things to, to do when you're pregnant to help the baby. But the Lord, the angel of the Lord gives her a sort of certain regime to follow for the sake of her unborn child. And the text makes it clear that Samson's mother follows the angel's instructions to the letter, which is which is a little bit more than can be said for, for Samson because his story is a bit of a mixed mixed bag, really. So, so yeah, I would suggest that, that women and women's stories, and particularly uh, including all, including their pregnancies, are very much a part of the biblical narrative in that regard. Yeah, it's fascinating because what what so many of those passages really emphasise is the continuity, isn't it, of life from conception right the way through. To, yeah we see Jacob and Esau's kind of temperaments almost, their destinies already beginning to, to be played out in the womb. And, and, and what's all the more remarkable about that, of course, is this is millennia before there's anything like the kind of technology we've got today where we can see that, uh, at least in the biological sense, the continuity. You know, we know from conception, well, that's where the new DNA is formed. We know the sex is determined, biologically speaking, there and then. Um, and it's amazing. The more I'm learning about what goes on in the womb, it is so. It is in so many cases, it's the baby uh, actually that triggers certain responses in the mother. It's the baby that emits signals uh, right after fertilization, saying, "I'm here. Don't expel me." And then later on, um, when it's time for delivery, it's the baby that sends out those signals. You know, so of course they're not conscious. Um, protagonists and it's not a willful decision it's not a decision of the will in that sense but it, it the baby is an independent well a distinct um living human being and, and it's amazing that these these inspired of course biblical writers saw that in such detail because one could forgive a pre you know it's a, it's a crude word but a pre-scientific culture being totally unaware or at least ambiguous um silent about the wonder of life in the womb, and especially from conception, you know, weeks before you can feel any movement, observe any movement, and weeks before you, you know, you can really yeah. see any difference in the, in the, the, the mother's body. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I, I think that idea of continuity is really important. And one of the things that scholars would say is that the vocabulary that's used of the child in the womb is, you know, these are words that describe children or sometimes even adults once they're born. So it's exactly the identical mm -hmm. kind of vocabulary um, for, for, a, for a life uh, before birth compared to a life after birth. And that's interesting because even in some of the, you know, the kind of voluminous uh, rabbinic discourses um, following the Old Testament, a kind of distinct vocabulary at times is developed by the rabbis to describe, you know, a kind of what we might call an embryo or a fetus. That, you don't really get that so much in the in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. It's it's, it's that identical kind of uh, language. And I think the other thing I'd say about 
and, and you're just going back to what you're saying about the, almost the child triggers the, the response. And there's some amazing scriptures. Look at Hebrew, uh, Hosea 13, 13, for example, that talks about, um, it's, it's figurative language. It's making a kind of point about salvation, history, something else. But it talks about um, the child, or a kind of unwise child not knowing when to present itself at the opening of the womb, which is just a fascinating little little kind of aside in the text. But I think it shows you that pervasive worldview, really. And one of the interesting things, fascinating things, um, there's a several words for, for uh, womb in, in Hebrew and Greek, but one of the most, probably most significant, the word rahem, is connected sort of... Uh, in its roots with the, with the Hebrew word for compassion, rahamim. So, and that's something that's kind of long been observed by, by theologians, but also kind of, I suppose, you know, feminist theologians have taken that up and, and, and run with it, particularly developed that motif because it's quite significant in what it says, this association between God's love on the one hand and the intense and intimate love of a mother for her child, the fruit of her womb on the other. And sort of essentially saying that within the human sphere you know in terms of how we understand love perhaps the closest analogy we get to divine love is that sort of maternal affection which begins uh during during pregnancy and you know i think when god wants uh, to express the depth and strength of his love he often turns that metaphor so think of isaiah 49 15 can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb and of course the rhetorical response is well no but the scripture goes on even though these may forget yet i will never forget you and and there's other parts elsewhere in isaiah isaiah 46 uh, 3 god talks about carrying the house of israel from birth carrying them from the womb even um, Isaiah 42, uh, 14, God compares himself to a, a woman in labor, sort of uh, gasping and panting to bring forth uh, her child, to bring forth this people. So, so yeah, I would suggest that's a really interesting, um, another kind of fruitful avenue of exploration, really. Yeah, and that's um, something that's worth picking up on in that, you know, for those listening in, maybe some listening in who aren't even uh, Christians, but you're just interested, you know, you're really welcome and we, we love having you here. And I think something that we Christians sometimes miss, perhaps in our tradition, you know, more sort of Protestant reform tradition, is just how wondrous it is the way God has left his fingerprints everywhere in creation. We see something of what God is like in creation. Nothing is by accident. The way he's designed things, um, they, they're gloriously suggestive so often of what he is like and that's especially true isn't it when it comes to human beings so when we think about the way god has designed for example the female body the way he's designed this womb as this um place of unique embrace and safety and secrecy and hiddenness and whatever else we we, we mustn't just dismiss that of, as as a bit of biology um but god is actually showing us something of his own nature and his own love especially in the way he's designed human beings and the functions of our bodies and, and the way we relate to each other. And, and in particular, as you say, that parental relationship, um, that time and again, the, you know, the marriage relationship, the parental relationship are picked up as analogies, aren't they, for God's love for us, for his people. Um, and it's worth just spending a bit of time chewing that over and contemplating that, um, you know, it's, and I think, as I say, our tradition is sometimes guilty of that. We we sort of we 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 can forget the expansiveness of of the revelation of God in the natural world, which which He made. It's not we don't believe in a God who is not interested in physical matter, in in biology, science. No, all of this is created by Him, and it's and it's just glorious, isn't it, to to consider. Absolutely. And, and I guess within the Old Testament, Dave, some of the most detailed descriptions of the unborn child come within what we might describe as the wisdom literature. So the wisdom literature is like um, the book of Proverbs, uh, Job, Ecclesiastes, and certain psalms are often seen as wisdom psalms. But the interesting thing about wisdom literature is it's often uh, presented as, as, or it has a major focus on creation. And, and kind of creation theology. And it's often seen as a little bit of a bridge perhaps from, um, from, from kind of Israel into the nations around. And because we can all, we all live in the natural world, we can all make sense of, you know, a beautiful sunset or um, yeah, the wonders of creation, if you like. And so 
I think some of the most, it's interesting that some of the most detailed descriptions come within, say, for example, the book of Job, um, you know, Job 10. I won't read the scripture now, but, but, but you know, Job 10 verses 8 to 12 are, are incredible in the context of Job's kind of wrestling with God. And, you know, it's important to understand what the context is here. Uh, you know, Job feel he's, feels he's being mistreated and kind of wants to point God back to the way uh, God fashioned him with such care, patience and love in the womb. But Job 10, 8 to 12 is a fascinating scripture. It's been called by one um, theologian and bioethicist, David Albert Jones. Well, he says, uh, Jones says it goes into more detail about the process of embryogenesis than any other passage of the human, uh, of the Hebrew canon, sorry. Um, and it, as I say, I won't read it, but there's, there's various ways that happens. So in verse 9, um, God speaks of moulding uh, the infant body like clay. And of course, that's I think a fairly obvious allusion to to Genesis 2, where God molds Adam, the first human being, from the dust of the earth, dust and clay being kind of used interchangeably. And in the same way, the creation of every child in the womb, I suggest, involves that intimate involvement of God. I think you described it as God's fingerprints uh, are on us in a way akin to the way they were on Adam and and then Eve. Um, Verse 11 of Job 10, God clothes the child. And of course, to be clothed by God in the scriptures is incredibly significant. It confers status, dignity, importance. Um, and within those detailed descriptions, there's a kind of high level of anatomical uh, detail. So Job talks about skin and flesh, bones and sinews. Um, and those four uh, terms appear elsewhere together only in Ezekiel 37, which is um, the prophet Ezekiel's amazing vision of the uh, the Valley of Dry Bones becoming an army of sort of resurrected bodies, resurrected people. And I'd suggest a couple of things are going on there. There's a link there between the wholeness uh, and completion of the body of the child in the womb, and also a connection between God's recreation of of a resurrection body and the creation of of, uh, the body at its origin in the the womb of of a woman. And In the sort of later tradition that the Old Testament inspires, sometimes called the intertestamental literature, that that is picked up. So when people are mocking the idea of resurrection, often uh, what happens is is God's people point them back to the miracle of life in the womb to sort of say, well, if God can do this, then why on earth can't he uh, recreate uh, bodies at at the judgment in the resurrection? And verse 12 just finally describes God's gift of life, really. God's gift of life to the unborn child It is God's gift. It is not ours to sort of give or take. It's God's gift of life. It expresses his covenant love, even uh, in utero, even at that early stage of, of development. So I would, if, if people do nothing else after watching this, I would suggest they go back to read Job 10, uh, 8 to 12, because I think Psalm 139 is probably the most well-known and, and understandably so, and it's a beautiful, beautiful passage, and I'll say a couple of things about that, but I would encourage folks to read Job 10, and, and certainly in the context of Job, which interestingly, Job's book mentions womb, the womb more than any other book in the Bible by quite mm. some distance. Mm. Mm. That is interesting, isn't it? Um, and also what we get in Job and also in Psalm 139 is a real emphasis. We mentioned it earlier on with, with conception in particular, but God's direct and personal involvement is not just that he designed the womb and the way that conception works and so on which in itself is wondrous but you know god is not just an inventor who you know set up the blueprint and then off it goes and it it sort of runs itself replicates itself and he's intimately uh involved um and that just seems to be stressed again and again doesn't it you mentioned it with conception you know god opened the womb and allowed whoever it was to conceive you know people especially in the book of genesis and for anyone interested, we a couple of podcasts on on the Breathos website about IVF and, and talking about God's intimate involvement in conception and the significance of that. Um, but but there's a passage, isn't there, in Job 31 that that kind of makes it clear that it's not just that God has a special interest in some people. It's not just you know, well, okay, well, God had an eye on David and Jeremiah or whatever. But but no, we can actually say that. God personally created each and every human being. Can you just... Um, yeah, absolutely, David. 
because because that that is often the point that's made. It's that well, people say, well, you know, okay, these are lovely descriptions, but they're about special special people: Jeremiah, David, Job. Well, there's no surprise, or Jacob. There's no surprise. God sort of has a special little bit focusing on their origins. It doesn't really apply to everyone else. Well, I think that's a curious argument for many reasons. I don't think it's very hermeneutically sound, but I think. I also think it's, it's kind of directly challenged by, by what Job goes on to say later. So Job 31 is a chapter where Job is asserting his innocence of various um, sins and, and ethical sort of transgressions. And he, he says in verses 13 to 15, um, so he says to God, if I've rejected the cause of my manservant or, or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up, when he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? So, so Job is kind of expressing a fairly enlightened um, position for his time that he's he's open to investigating complaints against himself, even by his own servants. He's, he's willing to do that because he recognises he has an ultimate master that he's going to give an account. And of course, we get similar ideas in the New Testament. But then he goes on in verse 15 to say this, did not he, meaning God, did not he who made me in the womb make him, i.e. my servant, and did not one fashion us in the womb. So in other words, along with God's just judgment, Job's other reason for, for fair and equitable treatment towards his servants is that Job and his unnamed and otherwise unknown servants have the same creator. They were made in the same place, in the same way that is within the womb. And I mean, yeah, I think that's what Job is saying of his servants, I think he's stating as a universal truth, really, for, for humankind. Yeah. And, you know, that was a context, a culture where there were ma major social differences. Mm -hmm. But whatever differences came to be after birth, they were not intended by God. I, you know, I saw a T-shirt the other day that said, stated, social justice begins in the womb. And I would suggest that's kind of exactly what Job, mm -hmm. um, the point Job is making in Job 31, mm -hmm. 13 to 15. Mm -hmm. and, you know, if that's Job's logic, then it's it's bizarre, really, isn't it, to deny human status to the very individuals, the very people, the children in the womb, he's using to argue for a common humanity, yeah. and he's using to argue for a common created status. You know, if they're not human, then the whole, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Yeah. Um, and so it's texts like that, Dave, that I would say... Mm you know, they also give us a kind of legitimacy to extrapolate to other texts, say Psalm 139 or, or earlier in Job, Job 10, that, that scriptures teaching on God's ways in the womb have a relevance, have a significance for all people. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. yeah that's, that's helpful. And, and again, worth pointing out how distinctive this, this is and this was in that culture. You know, we're talking about a culture in which kings were seen as gods or mm. semi-gods, you know, where... In many cultures, religions, the, the priests were a kind of godlike class and, and slaves were like property. You know, they really did not have the, again, we, we, we're used, growing up in a, a Christian, or at least a post-Christian mm. culture, we use this idea, um, we pay lip service to this idea that all people are valuable, but it's a Judeo-Christian principle. And, 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 it, and perhaps most... Um, Fundamentally and famously, it's founded on this idea, which is connected to what we've been talking about, but we haven't uh, gone for it head on yet. But the image of God, the fact that we are made in the image of God. And this is certainly universal. You know, we talked about, oh, is, is it just David? Is it just Job? Well, no, it's ever so clear. Right from Genesis 1, verse uh, 26, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Um, it's really clear. That's reiterated again. Is it reiterated, isn't it? Genesis nine after the flood. Um, so post fall, it's still true. Made in the image of God, um, and it's a it's a really important concept. Now we're not going to go into it in any great detail here in terms of what it actually means. We're going to do a, another whole podcast on that. But um, let's just talk about some of the implications of of the fact we're made in the image of God. Especially early on in Genesis, how do we see that being um, applied? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. The image of God is one of those things that, that's had a, a huge influence on, on on Jewish and Christian, especially Christian theology. I would suggest and anthropology, of course. Um, which is interesting because because the phrase itself, as you say, David, only appears those three times in, in Genesis. So Genesis chapter one, Genesis uh, chapter five, right at the beginning, verses one to three, where it's 
it, it's interesting because that's one of that's essentially Adam's genealogy, but it begins with God, which is interesting. Um, mm. And it's talking about Adam passing on his image to his son Seth. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's a, you know, we can look at any mother and child or father and child and, and, and we see often a, a family likeness or resemblance, mm-hmm. um, which, which often is the case that the baby, the child becomes increasingly to look like their, their, their parents. Um, so Genesis 5, 1 to 3 talks about Seth, Adam passing his image on to Seth, but it's very clear that the, the image he passes on is, is the image of God. So, so God's image remains, I would suggest, after the fall, um, and theologians debate the extent to which it remains and has it been damaged or defaced, but whatever you want to say about that, it remains. So it remains after the fall. It also remains after the flood. And um, we've talked a little bit about Genesis 9, which is Noah is sometimes seen as a second Adam. You know, God starts his project afresh, really, um, because of the, the wickedness that has come to sort of take over the, the earth and, and the lack of respect actually for human life, that the world is rife with, with violence. That's the, 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 the word that's used. Um, so God begins again. But, but as I say, he communicates that desire to, to, to recreate. And he also warns uh, mankind very clearly that they are not to take life. And the rationale for that is this third usage of the image of God that human beings are made in God's image. So, you know, human beings are on a on a scale above the animal kingdom. Yep. We're to take care of the natural world, we're to steward it well. Um, so, so Christians should be concerned about those things, but we're also to recognize there's a very clear ontological difference between yep. a human being and a and a chimpanzee or a human being and a and a dog or whatever, in that only humans are made in the image of God. And and sometimes there's a there's a there's a functional element to that. It's linked to kind of rulership and stewardship of the earth. But but I would suggest there's at least as strong an argument for a kind of ontological status there. And and that it doesn't matter whether you've got a child. Doesn't matter whether you've got someone who's who's very seriously handicapped or disabled. Doesn't matter if you've got someone who's quite old and has lost some of their mental faculties. That person is still a person. Uh, they're still in the image of God. They are still owed. Um, respect, uh, human dignity. And and Genesis now makes it very clear that, that one is not to take human life at any stage or in any um, way, shape or form. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I think that's important. And if you look at the, the New Testament, it's clear from the book of James, James 3 verse 9, that humankind continues to be an image of God, whether yeah. Christian or non-Christian, you know, regenerate or not, yeah. human beings are human beings and are yeah. owed yeah. A, a certain dignity yeah, and I wanted to pick, pick up on that James reference, actually, because I think what what um, the Genesis 5 reference, I think, shows us. I mean, I, I, found, I remember finding that very striking. We're made in God's likeness, and then Adam has a son in his likeness. We can therefore say that at least in part, at least in some way, being made in the image of God is akin to being, you know, father, son. We, we resemble him. Um, and, uh, and there's a sense in which, therefore, and only a limited sense um, in which all of us are God's children. We're all God's offspring. That's that's there in you know um, in the Book of Acts, isn't there? When Paul's preaching to pagan audiences, uh, Acts seventeen. We it is seventeen, isn't it? In Athens, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we are as offspring. Now, of course, that's not true in the special sense of you know only when we trust in Christ we're born again and we become the children of God. We're actually brought into His family. But there is a sense in which every human being, in the way that Seth. Or Adam's likeness because he was his son, there's a sense in which we all bear God's likeness because we are his children. Mm-hmm. And I see in scripture that God takes the, the, the killing of human beings, innocent human beings, God takes that personally. You know, I think in our cult- culture, you know, you're not allowed to deface, are you, an image of the queen? It's seen as a personal attack on the queen. And in some similar way, God takes it personally when his innocent image bearers are, are um, killed or, or otherwise mistreated. I'll come to that in a second. But just very briefly, Ezekiel 16, very striking. Um, the Lord's talking here about child sacrifice. Uh, and he's taking issue with his own people who adopted child sacrifice. And he says this in verse 21, you slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. My children, the Lord says. So he's taking this personally. You're attacking God's kids here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a really big deal. But what's very striking in James uh, uh, chapter three, 
Um, and, and actually, the whole of blockchain is interesting and the language is so strong, but we're talking about not paying people's wages here or you know, bad mouthing people. You know, it's 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 mild compared to the violence of actually killing uh, someone, although that's that's there as well, that's suggested. Um, but here in James 3, with the tongue, verse 9, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. The suggestion here is that praising God is directly at odds with cursing men. Why? Because men are made in God's image. So the, the cursing of men is not irrelevant to how we're treating God, actually. Again, God's in some way taking that person. You can't just curse men because they're made in my image. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, going back to the Ezekiel um, passage for a second, Ezekiel 16, 20 is interesting because it's talking in the context of, of Israel sacrificing their own children to God. But in that verse, uh, Ezekiel 16, 20, God says that um, you, you, you bear, you give birth to children, sons and daughters for me. Okay, mm. so so who does who does the child who does the child belong to? Whether the child is in the womb or whether the child has just been born, well, it's not society. It's not even the parents. Actually, mm. the, the child belongs to God. You know, so so every human being is 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 yeah ultimately uh, God's property, if you like. You know, so so yeah, who who are we to uh, to take take the life of of, of a child? Um, yes, we we are we are all made. We're all stamped. I suggest with that with that image. Um, Ambrose, the uh, church father Ambrose in Milan, has a lovely phrase where he talks about kind of God's artistry and making uh, human beings like it's like a beautiful painting. And and he sort of says, you know, who are we to erase that painting? Who are we to erase God's image in another human being? Yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. Dave. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's um, and it's it's particularly this being made the image of God thing, which which connects us to. Therefore, do not take innocent life. And, and that's the other great and very clear teaching of scripture with regard to abortion is, okay, it doesn't mention the word abortion, but it's ever so clear that the shedding of innocent blood is a really serious offense. It has an effect on uh, the standing of the nation uh, before God. It has an effect on the land. There's a curse brought on the land. Uh, and we could, we could go a lot more into that. But I, I wonder if we could just um, briefly touch on Okay, so I think we've established beyond any doubt, human beings begin life from conception. They're made in the image of God. They're precious. We can't, we're not permitted to take innocent life. Um, And of course, that's where some Christians stop, isn't it? They say, okay, well, I won't therefore have an abortion. That's my Christian response to abortion. I won't have one. But scripture does go beyond that, doesn't it, in terms of what we're obliged to do proactively and the cause of, of justice and and uh, not just standing by. Can you do? You, do you want to throw anything in, in on that front for us? Well, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, obviously, yes. Obviously, the whole the whole tenor of scripture in the in the old and the New Testament is about you know uh, safeguarding the vulnerable and and having a concern for those. Who, who are in need, whether that's the poor, whether that's the orphan, the widow, the sojourner. Um, and, and of course, you know, Proverbs talks about the way we treat uh, the poor, for example, being a, a reflection on our attitude to God as creator. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that kind of motif is, is almost taken up by Jesus, say, in the, in the, in the um, parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, where Jesus talks about, you know, the way you... The way you acted, the way you um, treated, you know, the least of these is a direct um, consequence, is a direct reflection on your attitude to, to me, actually. So, so that's, of course, interesting because Jesus puts himself in the, in the place of God uh, in that in that kind of uh, ethical tradition. But but yeah, I mean, you know, how, how can you have, you know, ultimately, how can you have um, an ethic about the sacredness of life? it's never a purely in-house thing Dave. it's never life life is life is universal life is for everyone you know god god gives life it's it's god's prerogative to to take life it's not ours so of course i think there is a there is a kind of consequence beyond the boundaries of the church we are obliged as christians to um 
to contend for the unborn just as we would contend for those uh, sold that trafficked into slavery as, as children or sex workers or you know any other human injustice we are obliged I believe as, as God's people to to contend on that score and of course if you go back to the early traditions of the church you know it's very very clear right from the first centuries um that you know abortion is something that kind of puts one one out of the Christian mainstream so the Didache mentions abortion very clearly uh, when it's discussing murder you know so there's, there's no kind of moral ambiguity about what abortion is or, or what it involves for the early church, I would suggest that. Mm, Absolutely. Mm, that's helpful. And, and what to those who might say, well, yeah, we see a lot about justice and, and uh, you know, reforming the culture in the Old Testament, but now we're in you know, New Testament, New Covenant, you know, our focus just needs to be preach the gospel and, you know, we don't really see that same emphasis. But what, how would you help people to sort of see the, the continuity there? Sure. Well, sure. Let, let's dive into the New Testament from, from the Old Testament. That's probably an appropriate transition for it. And, and I think just to say, there's loads of other scriptures we could have touched on. We've not really gone into some of them at all, or Ecclesiastes uh, 11.5. So, so do kind of... But yeah, I mean, I mean, the New Testament, of course, picks up very much, I'd suggest, where the Old Testament left off. And Matthew and Luke have these amazing infancy narratives, mm. which tie together, bring a lot of these threads and themes together around birth narratives in the Old Testament from conception to uh, the birth of, 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 of children. And, you know, the, the message is very clear that, that Jesus is our redeemer and he's, to quote one book's title, he's a redeemer in the womb, from the womb. Um, this is where life begins. This is where human life begins. And so Christ, uh, as the perfect human, his life, his life begins at the same point. Jesus is fully human uh, from conception. Of course, that tells us um, something significant about the incarnation, about the lengths God goes to uh, and the humility of the son to save the world and, um, you know, becoming uh, a baby in the, you know, in the tiny confines of the womb, but also something profound about the nature of the unborn child, you know. So how can the child in the womb from conception not be regarded as a human person when, because if that's the case, well, then what is Christ in mm. that state? You know, Christ mm. is not some sort of, he's not in some sort of limbo state. He's not somehow less than human, less than a, a person. He is still a person even at that early stage. So I would suggest, yeah, absolutely. The incarnation is, as it were, the crowning proof for the humanity of the unborn child. So we take all those amazing descriptions from the Old Testament, which kind of puts cumulatively paint this beautiful picture of of God's creation God's intimate concern and love for the unborn mm. child God's plans for the unborn child from from uh, the womb of course even before the womb uh, that's true as well but certainly from within the womb um and and they kind of crown that with the incarnation which of course is unique to Christianity and you know one of the phrases I've used recently is, is about you know if 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 the gospel is about you know God entering the womb to bring life and salvation to to the guilty. How can um, how can a human be? How can man entering uh, the womb to bring death and destruction to the innocent? How can that not be a quote unquote mm-hmm. gospel issue? How can that not have an impact mm-hmm. on our preaching, on our teaching, mm-hmm. on our kind of ethical thinking? So, absolutely, you know. The Apostles' Creed, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. There's that word again, conceived, born of the Virgin Mary. You know, mm-hmm. for, for Orthodox believers, and, and this is not actually just for evangelicals, for any kind of Orthodox Christian believer, these things are non-negotiable. Though. You know, the, the, the infancy narratives are not myths. They can't be airbrushed out without doing substantial damage, I suggest, to Christology, to soteriology, to how we're saved, and to human anthropology. And, you know, we've talked a little about women in the in the Old Testament. Well, of course, you know, Luke, he puts um, women, you know, front and centre in chapter one of his gospel. And there's a lovely exchange and conversation between the older Elizabeth and her younger relative, Mary, who, who are both pregnant and, you know, focusing on the unborn John for a moment. Um, John is told Luke one fifteen that he's going to be all you know, Gabriel tells uh, John's father, Zachariah, that John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And so immediately we're thinking of uh, this other Nazarite, uh, Samson, because John is told he must refrain from uh, wine and strong drink, of course, as Samson was told, whether or not he stuck to it, I don't know. But um, 
so Gabriel's description of John picks up those Old Testament threads, but it kind of elevates it. You know, this is John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and, and his life is going to be a successful ministry, unlike Samson's, of turning people back to God, uh, actually reconciling parents with children, interestingly. Um, and of course, Luke goes on, Luke sort of 141 to 44, to talk in more detail about what happens when Elizabeth hears the greeting of Mary. John leaps in her womb, and that's that word that was used in the Greek translations mm -hmm. of the Old Testament for Jacob and Esau doing kind of battle. Well, here, John is leaping for joy. Um, with Jacob and Esau, obviously, they're in the same womb. Here, uh, John is leaping in one room in Elizabeth's room at the presence of Jesus, who really, let's be honest, is, is maybe only a few days old at this stage. He's a he's a he's a kind of zygote or whatever. He's a really embryonic stage. But at the presence of Jesus, John leaps in in the womb. It's a it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. I mean, it's very I think it's very hard to read those scriptures and say, well, you know, this, yeah. this is just poetic or there's there's no significance here for for other human pregnancies and mm. one very final point you know sort of a biblical theological point you know uh, theologians get very excited with the way Luke has presented his material in terms of Mary's journey to Elizabeth in the hill country of Judea and then her eventual return to Bethlehem and then presenting the child Jesus at the temple in um, Jerusalem which is obviously you know Jesus is a light to the nations a light to the Gentiles and of course, I think what Luke is doing there, this is the biblical theological question, is that he is mirroring what's happening in 2 Samuel 6, where the Ark of the Covenant is taken up into the hill country of Judea, where it stays, it remains for three months before eventually coming back to Jerusalem. And David leaps and dances in front of the Ark of the Covenant, just as um, Elizabeth and John leap. And so Mary, in other words, is kind of the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus is God's presence the word made flesh you know the ark of the covenant contained the tablets of the law god's word written if you like well jesus is god's word made flesh and he mm. is even at that stage in mary's womb our, mm. our redeemer mm. Mm. i've gone off that's on one wonderful. of it there i apologize but that's <laughs> no that's fantastic because you know what what i think you've helped us to see there is is the abortion issue and being pro-life is not some distraction from the gospel. It's not an embarrassment. It's not something we, well, okay, well, if we have to do it, we'll try and do it quickly and get it over and done with. Because actually, this is part of bearing witness to who God is and what he's like and, and what the gospel is. You know, the gospel is inherently, as you say, it's, it's care for the vulnerable by the strong. It's sacrifice, self-sacrifice for others. And, uh, you know, there's something about um, authentic Christian martyrdom that is, if I can put it this way, it's kind of more than the sum of its parts. What, what we see, I mean, I'm thinking of Onhofer as one example. When someone lays down their life for, for Christ's sake, it's not just an extreme act of devotion. It's Christ-like. It reminds us of the cross where Jesus himself laid down his life for others. And, and martyrdom itself bears witness. Martyrdom tells a story. We're not talking about suicide bombers here. We're talking about people who lay down their lives and allow themselves to be abused for the sake of the gospel. And it's, I think it's very common um, when we're in that, those moments in history to think, oh, we don't want to get caught up in that. You know, bon, uh, Bonhoeffer, don't worry about the whole Jewish thing. Let's just preach the gospel. Or here we are today. Let's not get caught up in politics. No, there's an amazing opportunity here to bear witness to the glories of the gospel um, in the way we actually position ourselves as the strong on behalf of the weak and take the ridicule and whatever else. Why? Because God cares for these people and, and we want to follow him in that. So, yeah, this has been really, really enriching. Um, thank you, Tim. Um, is there anything you, before we kind of round up, is there anything else you want to kind of put out there anything you'd like to leave with people um any particular thought or challenge or, or something for people to go away and chew on or, or just anything we've already talked about that you think needs to be especially highlighted i could i could go on for a long time <laughs> as you probably read i mean just picking up on what you said very briefly i would that idea of witness to christ and of course witness and martyr it's the mm -hmm. same word mm -hmm. I, 
you know, if you go to the very end of the New Testament, Revelation 12, it's interesting that, that, that God's people, God's children, if you like, part of their witness to the world is cast in this incredible kind of mythic vision of a woman about to give birth mm. and the dragon wanting to destroy the fruit of her womb. And even once she's given birth, the dragon pursuing her children. So I think absolutely this is kind of baked into the, to the script, if you like. Um mm. No, I mean, just a couple of final threads in the New Testament. I mean, of course, Jesus has a great love for children. And, and of course, we see that in various places and we see that in him welcoming children to him. I think, you know, Jesus is absolutely formed in that Old Testament Jewish mindset that children are a gift from God. And, and he receives children, which in Luke 18 is, is brefe, with the plural, plural of brephos, which, of course, is, you know, all about that word. It's the word for a child within or without the womb. So, to me, there's a, there's a, you know, how would Jesus welcome a child once they're born, but not have anything to say to mm. them or any interest in that that child for the for the nine months or so they're in the, the womb? It just doesn't mm. it doesn't make sense to me. And, and it, in Jesus's other teachings, for example, John 16, he uses the image of, of pregnancy and childbirth to talk about his resurrection. You know, the disciples are going to weep and, and and be in anguish like mm. a woman in childbirth until. Mm. Uh, the baby is, is is born, at which point her kind of sadness and her grief, her anguish evaporates mm. in the same way it's going to be like that with, with, the, with the vision of the resurrected Christ. So Jesus is all the time using this kind of imagery. Um, and I think what you said just briefly on the New Testament about these ideas of welcoming the other, mm. you know, hospitality, mm. how we understand the body as Christians, you know, um, ultimately none of our bodies belong to us you know um our bodies our bodies are the lords and how we use our bodies um reflects our relationship with god you know glorify god in your bodies you you are not your own you are bought with a price and i think there are the materials in the new testament between paul's writings around welcoming the other hospitality you know you've done a lot of good stuff on 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 our neighbor who is our neighbor and how the unborn child of course is qualifies as our neighbor so hospitality to welcoming the other and how you know i would i would understand pregnancy as a unique form very particular and unique form but a kind of understanding of a of a situation of hospitality where one puts one's body uh, one's life if you like at the service of another human life for, for, mm. for a certain window and time but one yeah one uses one's body for for the sake of another in a very particular way so yeah, and I think there's there's a lot of work to be done on mm. the Christian understanding there of pregnancy from from the New Testament. I mean, I think what I'd leave people with is is just you know we've mentioned a lot of scriptures. I would I think first and foremost I would encourage people to go back to, and, and and read some of those scriptures, read some of those wonderful depictions in whether it's Psalm 139, whether it's Job 10 or Ecclesiastes 11 5 or some of these people who are talked about from the womb, and that includes Paul, includes Jeremiah, the plans God has for them just immerse yourself in the scriptures because I think I don't think this is something we're kind of inventing as Christians or you know it's something that emerges I would suggest organically from from God's words you know I think God's word gives us wisdom for the whole of life um and I would suggest for an understanding of the one child and the related issue of abortion you know God's word I think has the resources to develop a robust Christian account of these things you know and I would just yeah encourage if you're a Christian, great. If you're not a Christian, well, you'll get to get into the word and see what these things, uh, see what you make of them for yourself. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, thank you, Tim. I, I love how you mentioned that that idea we're, we're not our own. Our bodies are not our bodies. And that does real violence, doesn't it, to the thinking of our day, my body, my choice, not just in the in the, uh, the sort of consequence that sometimes played out there you know, to the point of taking the life of an innocent human being, the baby in the womb, but actually, even prior to that, just this idea that was my body is my choice. Well, actually, what we're talking about here is really quite radical. Um, it does violence to that 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 cherished ideal of our culture. We're not our own. And, you know, if, if the people out there are wanting to be radical uh, as disciples of Christ, they want to you know, go the whole hog. Well, let's get our head around this idea that really um, is 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 diametrically opposite to, to what we're hearing all the time. And, and if you're out there listening and you you're not a Christian, but you you want to understand uh, what what is Christianity all about. Well, be prepared. We're, we're talking about something that is rad, a radical overhaul of of your your values, your thinking. Um, but it's so good and it's glorious, and it's because God has made us, and it's 
it's a real joy to my heart, actually, to be talking about this and to be reminding one another that we're not our own. It is so much better to be living for the God who created us than uh, trying to do our own thing. Tim, thank you so much. Really enjoyed this. Wish we could go on, but um, <laughs> I think I think we aimed to be about 30 minutes. I think it's coming up to an hour. So we're going to stop. But, but... <laughs> Well, well, thank you, Dave. You can tell I'm probably passionate about this. It's kind of, I spend a lot of time thinking about these things and, and reading into them. And so, yeah, I'm just delighted to have this opportunity and, and uh, thank you. And yeah, God bless you and, and your ministry, which is just shining a light on these things. And I'm so grateful to the work of CBR and, and Brefos, um, which I've had the most kind of interaction with. So, so thank you. Well, thank you, Tim. And uh, yeah, let's do this again sometime. Absolutely. Cheers, Dave.